Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. LAist Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, will movie theater attendance ever return to pre-pandemic levels? One huge chain says not anytime soon. Plus, the documentary Battleground profiles some of the activists who fought to overturn Roe v. Wade and what the consequences of their victory might mean. It's important that people understand how our democracy can be undermined and how people who are single-issue voters can be elevated and given a disproportionate amount of power. But first, here's my retake for this week. Back in early 1994, well before he would end up running Sony Pictures, Tom Rothman headed production at the independent distributor Samuel Goldwyn. And we both had just seen the premiere of Go Fish at the Sundance Film Festival. It was an original, well-made and clever romantic comedy about lesbians. Not something you saw nearly 30 years ago. Maybe she considers herself bisexual. Well, then she should say that. But I don't. I'm a lesbian who had sex with a man. No such thing. I had sex with one man. Rothman told me at the time that if every lesbian in America came to see Go Fish, he'd have a hit. He promptly bought the film for $450,000, and it came out that summer. We'll never know exactly how many lesbians bought tickets, but the film grossed more than $2.41 million in domestic theaters, and that translates to about $5 million today. Not a hit, but for an independent film, not bad at all. I recalled that Go Fish story when Billy Eichner's new gay romantic comedy, Bros, flopped at the box office last weekend. I don't think I'm his type. How do you know? Because I know. He told me he likes country music and his favorite singer is Garth Brooks. What kind of gay man says his favorite singer is Garth Brooks? That scares me. Universal Pictures had touted the film as kind of a latter-day Go Fish, the first major studio LGBTQ comedy starring an openly LGBTQ cast. The studio was hoping for an opening weekend close to $10 million. Instead, Bros took in less than half of that. And the blame started immediately. Even with glowing reviews, great Rotten Tomato scores, an A cinema score, etc., straight people, especially in certain parts of the country, just didn't show up for bros. That's what Eichner, who also co-wrote bros, said on Twitter. Movies that draw solid reviews and solid word of mouth usually do solid business. Bros had both, but it didn't make a blip at the box office. But was homophobia really to blame? There are many theories about the film's poor performance. Here are some of the most credible. One, Eichner and co-star Luke McFarlane aren't box office draws. Indeed, the posters for bros doesn't even use their faces. What's more, Eichner's persona, based on his show Billy on the Street, is that guy who yells at strangers on the sidewalk. Some people might think it's best in small doses. Sir, How I Met Your Mother is ending. What? For a dollar, who would you rather meet, your mother or Neil Patrick Harris? Patrick Harris. He's right here! I didn't see him. You didn't see him! He's standing right here! Theory two. 
It's great that Universal was willing to make the first studio wide release gay romantic comedy. But when that angle is part of the marketing, does bros become a symbol rather than entertainment? And unlike when Go Fish debuted in 1994, today there is no shortage of quality LGBTQ content on streaming platforms. The final theory. It's not as if romantic comedies have been killing it at the box office. The upcoming Ticket to Paradise, starring George Clooney and Julia Roberts, is going to be a true test of whether the genre's decline can be reversed. All or some of those theories might be true when it comes to bros, but there's another, and I'm going to argue, more important explanation. And that is, no matter its merits, bros failed the critical test for any movie or moviegoer, whether gay or not. Is the movie worth a trip to the multiplex? And as dramatized by the accelerating collapse in the exhibition business, a parent of Regal Cinemas, should be noted, just filed for bankruptcy, audiences increasingly find it easier to stay away. Bros was simply swept aside by that veto. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Roll Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. When it comes to the debate over abortion rights, more than 60% of Americans say that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. And more than 70% of Americans, whether they oppose abortion or not, believe there should be exceptions in certain circumstances. Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision that established a constitutional right to abortion, was overturned this year. As the new documentary Battleground shows, the court's decision followed years of laser-focused activism by abortion rights opponents, and the impact of both their work and the court's decision could reach well beyond the issue of abortion rights. Here's my conversation with the film's director, Cynthia Lowen. I want to ask you about what was going on in the abortion debate when you started working on this film, because certainly the news changed rapidly while you were in the middle of production. Yes. So I began filming in the summer of 2019, shortly after Alabama was the first state at the time to pass a total abortion ban. And then, of course, because Roe was still the law of the land, it was unconstitutional and it was quickly challenged. So the case was in the courts. However, the governor had signed the ban into law and I was really struck by the boldly and blatantly unconstitutional ramping up of this anti-abortion legislation. So I went down to Alabama in the summer of 2019 and originally started filming with pro-choice advocates and people who had testified against the ban in the Alabama legislature. I quickly, however, really felt like I needed to investigate the anti-abortion forces because I really wanted to understand how it was possible for them to be doing what they were doing and passing all of this anti-abortion legislation 
when seven in 10 Americans support abortion access. So by the end of 2019, the project had really pivoted to go behind the scenes with the anti-abortion movement. Every documentary filmmaker, like a narrative filmmaker, casts his, her, or their film. I want to play a voice from somebody who's prominent in your film, and then we'll talk about the people that you sought and how you uh, persuaded them to be part of this film. So let's listen to this first clip. Being an atheist, liberal pro-lifer is a weird life. <laughs> it's definitely something people aren't expecting. I get hate mail from everybody. <laughs> So tell us about that person and why she was important to your film. Teresa Bukanovic represents a very different facet of the anti-abortion movement than I think most people expect, as she said. Um, I think that a lot of people have this notion that anti-abortion people are, quote, old white men. And what I discovered in the process of making the film is that there are a lot of women who are leaders in this movement, and there are a lot of young women who are involved in this movement. And that was something that was really surprising to me. And what I think it speaks to is that the anti-abortion movement very much has set its sights on the next generation and in cultivating single-issue voters who may come from political persuasions that people don't typically associate with anti-abortion people. And yet, if they can convince all of these people to be single issue voters on the issue of abortion, they have a chance of overcoming the fact that they are in the vast minority of people in this country. It's fair to say that you as a filmmaker are coming into this project as somebody who believes in abortion rights, correct? Yes, absolutely. So when you are interacting with people whose views you disagree with, one, how do you gain their trust? And two, how do you make sure that you are not depicting their beliefs in a way that undermines their integrity and their um, and their beliefs themselves? It was important to me that the individuals in the film and, and in all my films, that they are not caricatures. What I said to the three central anti-abortion individuals in the film when I approached them was that the influence of the anti-abortion movement over American policy, legislation, and culture is a fact, putting aside one's personal perspective on where they fall on the issue of abortion itself. The movement is a fact in our country's political landscape. And that fact alone is something that I think is worth investigating and understanding and seeing who these people are, what they're driven by, how they're doing what they're doing. And so what I said to them was that that was the goal of this film was to depict them completely and accurately and that uh, I would do so in the most accurate way possible. And that was really, I think, what enable them to have trust in this process. And I certainly think that that's the film that emerged. Again, as I was saying, we didn't caricature anybody. We didn't have a gotcha moment. The film really, I think, tries to show how the anti-abortion movement has become a really formidable element of what's happening in this country. And there's no question about that now that we've seen Roe overturned. 
that these are forces that I think we really need to understand and we need to really take them seriously because we are all living with the influence and power that they have been able to amass and exert. I guess this is almost, you know, the highest compliment I can give you is that at the end of the film, I did not expect the last title card, which is here are three actions you can take right now to support abortion access, because I didn't see the film as an advocacy film for uh, abortion rights. And I guess that's your goal. But I have to say, I was surprised that you that you staked out an advocacy position at the end of the movie. I think the film itself is incredibly editorial, editorially restrained and very much shows the facts on the ground as they are. The dimension of the film that we are building out, which is the part of the film that takes place off the screen, is what do people do with this information? And if you are a pro-choice person who is coming to this film, who is having your eyes opened about what we are up against as pro-choice people, not just in terms of women's access to abortion, but in larger terms, in terms of our democracy and the fundamental separation between church and state. If you are somebody who feels really motivated by what you have just seen, we want to make sure that we are giving you a place to focus that motivation and the sense many people have shared with me after the film is is a sense of feeling really enraged and infuriated and also really fired up. And what we have been living with, I think, is a great deal of complacency on the part of the left and on the part of pro-choice people who just never imagined it was possible for the anti-abortion movement to succeed in their goal of overturning Roe because they never took them seriously. And now we have been forced to take them seriously. And that being the reality, I think that part of the job that I want this film to do is to be a tool to help channel that offline, separate from the film, as part of the impact campaign work that we are building for this film to hopefully really make a difference in the elections that we are coming up against in November and more broadly in all of the elections that this country is facing, because I think it's important that people understand how our democracy can be undermined and how people who are single issue voters can be elevated and given a disproportionate amount of power by lawmakers who are simply out to secure their votes and secure their power and then basically use that to gerrymander. There are factors, obviously, that led to Dobbs that are kind of beyond the scope of this film, although you do touch on them. One is how we elect senators and how senators represent the country because the majority of Americans do believe in abortion rights. The other one is the blocked nomination of Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court and his replacement, Neil Gorsuch, and what that meant in the court's makeup. All of that said, I think it's fair to say the anti-abortion people that you profile are very good at their jobs. Even if you don't like their jobs, they are organized, they are tactical. Again, you might not like them, but isn't it fair to say that they do their job very well? I think it is fair to say that they are doing everything in their power to advance their agenda, be it through misinformation, be it through manipulating democratic processes, be it through 
grassroots organizing. Yes, they are firing on many, many different levels. They are organized. They are savvy. They are intelligent. They are connected. They are funded. And I think that that was one of the key things that I wanted pro-choice people to understand because all the images that I have seen prior of anti-abortion people, to me, I was like, this doesn't add up because mainly what I have seen prior of anti-abortion people are folks praying outside of abortion providers or waving, you know, gruesome graphic signs and people who don't seem particularly equipped to be passing massive large scale legislation. And so that was really that sense of curiosity. Like, you know what? I, it's not these people who are pulling this off. Who is and how are they doing it? And yeah, that's why I made the film. These are conversations that are unrelated broadly to personal experience. And you bring it back to personal experience. I want to play another piece of audio. This is a woman who identifies as Lauren. I don't think we know her last name. You never really think you'd be, like, basically personally victimized by government until it comes down to it. And here I am. Three, four, five, six, eight weeks and six days today. It needs to be by the end of next week. So... Tell us about Lauren's geographical situation, because what happens to her in the course of a couple of days as laws are challenged and changed is remarkable. Yes. Yeah, so this was in the early spring of 2020, right at the emergence of the pandemic during lockdown. Lauren is based in Texas and the Texas governor had used the excuse of the pandemic to end abortion services in the state of Texas. The law was challenged. And so for, for a period, the law is not in effect. So she goes to an abortion clinic. She thinks she has an appointment. She's just trying to get the abortion pill. And she goes, she checks in. And between the time she checks in at the clinic for her appointment and her ability to be seen, the law changes again and they ban abortion again in the state of Texas. And she ends up having to hop on a flight again at the height of the early pandemic to Denver, where she is able to get a prescription for the abortion pill and then hop on a plane and go back to Texas. And she has the means to get on a plane. There are many, many yes. millions more people who don't. You finished this film before the Dobbs decision comes in. I don't know if you finished editing it. I suspect you have. But when you're done with the film and you know that Dobbs is going to be decided, was your gut that Roe is going to go down? I mean, did you see enough in the making of this film that made you really expect the decision that came down? Yes. As soon as Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed, it was clear to me that they were going to overturn Roe. There was no question in my mind. It was just a matter of time. I think that that was the goal. In a way, the film really ends with her being confirmed. And yet you see that even though she has been confirmed, which is a major victory for the anti-abortion movement, they say, you know, we take our we take our wins happily, but we don't we don't stop. We keep going. And and that anti-democratic ways that anti-abortion policies are being enacted, the end goal is to solidify a certain group's power 
which they are then using to gerrymander, to end access to voting. Uh, it's it's not like, oh, it's just this like women or pregnant people's rights thing. You know, this it's it really matters for all of us. Cynthia, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, John. That was Cynthia Lowen, the director of the documentary Battleground. It opens in select cities on October 7th and starts a 40 city tour on October 11th. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Will Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. And finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. This week, we checked in on the state of movie theaters, with attendance still nowhere near pre-pandemic levels. But we started with a big development in the legal aftermath of the fatal rush shooting. This is, I have to say, a little bit surprising. There's two parts of it that are surprising. One, as part of the settlement, and this was a lawsuit brought by uh, the husband of Helena Hutchins and their son, is that filming on Rust is going to recommence next year. I can't imagine anybody wanting to work or see a movie in which somebody was shot and killed. And second, as part of the settlement, uh, Matthew Hutchins said, I'm quoting him now, I have no interest in engaging in recriminations or attribution of blame to the producers or Mr. Baldwin, unquote. Very different from what he said in his civil action in February, where he said, and I'm quoting from that action now, that Baldwin, quote, recklessly caused a deadly weapon to discharge, unquote, was in violation of New Mexico law, and that the production, quote, chose to hire the cheapest crew available rather than hiring, training, and supervising crew who were qualified. It's also important to note that this resolves one of several civil lawsuits involving the film. There have been no criminal actions yet, but the investigators and the district attorney supervising the case have said such uh, actions might be imminent and that Baldwin could be among the targets. So the civil action in this case is settled, but there could be worse news down the road for Alec Baldwin. All right. Thank you, John. Now, um, switching topics here. I know you spend a fair amount of time paying attention to Wall Street and the entertainment business because sometimes that's where you can find some noteworthy stories. So what is the latest thing that's caught your eye? Well, we talked about the exhibitor Cineworld and its filing for bankruptcy about a month ago. And it's a British movie theater chain. It operates more than 9,000 screens around the world, probably best known in the States for Regal. It's the second biggest chain behind AMC. But in the last few days, Regal has closed a dozen theaters, including the Anaheim Hills 14, Calabasas Stadium 6, and the West Park 8 in Southern California. And when Cineworld, after the bankruptcy filing, reported its earnings, or I should say its losses, it made an interesting footnote. And it said that it did not expect movie attendance to return to pre-pandemic levels for at least two years. So that's 2025. And if that's true, and every indication so far suggests it is, I think that could really be 
And I don't mean to be glib here, like the beginning of the curtain falling on the future of movie theaters. Didn't people think that the success of Top Gun Maverick over the summer and last year's Spider-Man sequel and then the new uh, Jurassic World and Doctor Strange movies meant that people were returning to theaters after the pandemic shutdown? For those movies and not much else. I mean, you can really misinterpret that. And just as Cineworld was filing for bankruptcy, the New York Times had a headline that read, quote, movie theaters had a great summer, but there's a plot twist. Well, they didn't have a great summer. If they did, Regal wouldn't be closing theaters. Through the end of August of this year, ticket sales totaled $5.26 billion. And while that's a huge improvement from 2020 and 2021, it's way, way down from 2019, the first kind of full year pre-pandemic. It's down almost 33% from then. Well, is this all the fault of streaming and the renaissance of great TV? You can see this wonderful entertainment without having to leave your home. That is true, but the pandemic didn't make theaters go out of business. It only accelerated what was already coming. Per capita movie attendance was already falling you know, pretty steadily before the pandemic hit. So the real problem is that streaming and great TV, what it created for theaters, is that what makes for a movie that you have to see in a theater? I think the real issue is the motivation to get out of the house into a theater is vastly different than it was before. Yes, streaming has a part to play in that. The pandemic has a part to play in that. Great TV has a part to play in it. The problem is movie theaters don't have a great part to play in it because it's very rare that people feel motivated to leave the house and go see a movie, if it's not Top Gun or one of those other big movies. John Horn, thanks so much for coming into the studio this morning and filling us all in on the world of arts and entertainment. Appreciate it. My pleasure, as always, Suzanne. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. The associate producer is Sabir Brara, with production assistance this week from Tyler Wayne. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS Newsroom. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.